I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you are listening to Captured in Celluloid, a podcast about movies, a podcast about the movies and the video essays of Koganada this week. We are very excited to jump in and discuss all that. But before we start, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm well. Uh, you know, I'm ready to move forward into 2022. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we get to discuss a film from 2022. And best that we kind of just forget 2021 for now. Yeah, do we want to Do we want to just skate right past? I don't really want to get lost in it. There was an Oscars. Our last episode was an Oscars preview and predictions. Uh, I, I had made the point, as I have done for multiple years, where I pointed out I have a very good track record of predicting Oscars. And this is the last year that I will be saying that because I got burned this year. I didn't believe the Coda wave was real and the Coda wave was really real. Um, so I, I got burned on the big categories. Outside of the big categories, I did really, really well. But the top marquee categories where I felt there would be some upsets or I felt some favorites would hold, I got burned pretty badly. But hey, I don't think anyone was focusing on that in the aftermath. I think... I was not the story of the Oscars in terms of who had a bad night. Yeah. I, you know, listening to the podcast and the roundup the next day, I was, I was wondering if anyone was going to call you out by name specifically to chastise you uh, for, for not seeing the Coda wave coming. I will say the Coda wave was not um, an instance of me being right. It was an instance of my cynicism uh, coming back to bite me. I like to set myself up. Uh, with negative expectations so that I can be pleasantly surprised. And unfortunately, in this case, I was not. Uh, but those Oscars, Adam, save for one moment, it's, it's, it's face to, safe to say they didn't really slap. Uh, no, they did not. I, I think it really might be the worst Oscars ever. It's, I, I think it's right in the mix. I mean, last year was not great, and I think a lot of the format changes the soda we made didn't work. But from the Beyonce opening, which is just like, this is, I have no problem if that performance is in the building and the people are watching on, but completely removing it from that is then taking any Oscars or movie context away from it. And that was, that got off on the wrong foot. Uh, even one of the good things, like Hamaguchi winning his Oscar, Drive My Car winning Best um, International Feature, and he was like 20 seconds into his speech and so they started trying to play him off on a night where I don't think anyone else got played off, or at least that we know of. I mean, we didn't see the full speeches of the people who weren't even shown live. But, yeah, not, not a good night at all. I mean, ratings going up. Good for the Oscars, I guess. What does it really mean? What's it mean for movies? I don't know. Maybe in the months ahead, at some point, we'll revisit and be like, so Netflix, uh, who keep making a lot of terrible stuff, but also acquiring, if not themselves, entirely funding some of the best movies of the year, some of the most nominated films in an Oscar sense, too. And then they're coming away with next to nothing. Interesting. And Apple come in and just straight away, the Academy was all too happy to be like, here you go, Apple, here's best picture. So really strange, really interesting. I think as we talked about on the pod, I 
I think Coda would have been better off. Its legacy would have been better off if it was like a second place film that could be kind of loved in a quieter sense by the people who love it for years to come. I don't think it will be served very well historically by being a best picture. I think it will appear in annual articles that it probably doesn't belong in. Like, I don't think it's a truly terrible film. Um, but it's it's a film changes when someone, a large group and the, the most prominent group in the world declare it to be the best of a year. Like, that changes what a film is. It changes an audience's relationship to it. and. I hope a lot of people will check out Coda and be charmed by it in the way that like you and I were charmed by it back in August, September, whenever it was, it hit Apple where the idea of it being Oscar nominated in any way was insane. But I think a lot of people will watch it with expectations and be like, what the hell is this? This is what, this is what movies are. This is what a best picture looks like in 2021. So the one thing that so far has spared it from that is uh, Will Smith grabbed all the headlines but once that subsides over time, I think an interesting legacy awaits that film and one that, you know, it's probably not probably not deserving to find stuff in that spot. But as you said, we've done a lot of 2021, a lot of work to get to the point we got to over the last couple of weeks with our own top 10s. You can go listen to that if you haven't already. Lots of great recommendations in there of our favorites of the year for you to check out. But we're going to, really kickstart our 2022 um we've already talked about kimmy as a 2022 release the batman i think that's it i think that's it of films that will go down as 2022 movies we're gonna add to that collection now and we're gonna do so with someone who i think is one of the most interesting filmmakers working not just because of how he makes movies the kind of movies he's making because of his his own background and his story. And I am talking about Koganada, the director of the recently released After Yang, um, previously directed the 2017 feature Columbus. And for a lot of like hardcore movie fans, whether they knew him by name or not, I think a lot of people would have been exposed to his work because he was pretty prolific, very successful as a video essayist for Sight and Sound and I guess BFI, depending on what kind of content he was he was doing over the years and for Criterion. So he made a lot of really kind of striking, thoughtful, very insightful video essays on different elements of craft, on performance. And I feel like in the vast majority of cases, on a lot of the great kind of classic masters of cinema, and he's put together some of the more interesting kind of contemporary video work on them and has been widely celebrated for that. And I, I don't think too many people have been able to make content as informative, intelligent, and as engaging as he has on those kind of filmmakers. It was kind of as a form of criticism, video essays are continuing to, I don't know if I want to say thrive, they exist, but there aren't too many people who do it like Koganada does. And I did not catch see Columbus. I did not catch Columbus in a movie theater when it came out, which was quite disappointing to me. But when I eventually was able to see it and I heard, oh, you know, this is Koganada. I had seen some of his work previously. 
I was really curious as to what he would be like as a director. And I guess we'll get to the heart of a lot of that right now. So, Andrew, Columbus was a movie. It's a movie I really, really love. Kind of a personal favorite of the last few years. I think of the kind of the underseen variety that maybe a lot of people won't have heard of. I had pestered you for quite some time to see this film. I think on the podcast, one example of that goes back to when we gave streaming recommendations back near the start of the pandemic. And eventually, I don't know, can you remember quite when it was, but a little while ago, not not just for this episode, you were ahead of that, but you gave in and you watched Columbus. You're you're probably like about to fire up your letterbox, are you, and try and go searching for it. I am. I'm trying to figure out uh, when I've logged this. I've logged it twice, and I loved it uh, both times. And oh, hold on, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna figure this out. It's, it's gonna good. show me the first time I watched it. This is great podcasting. Uh, July eight months ago. Yeah. Yes. So, what was your impression? So it's it's really interesting um, because I I'm, and I'm to... asking you, we're, we won't dive right into Columbus talk, but just what was your impression of it? Because I'm guessing I don't even know. I don't think I'd given you too much detail on Koganada, but you didn't know a lot about him, if anything, at that point. No, I, I knew literally nothing. And so I'm someone that's come from a place of seeing his films first and then working back to see his video essays. And with Columbus, I was initially blown away. But because it seemed to be such an elevated version of the kind of movies that I like, because there's a degree of the, you know, walk and talk to kind of uh, scarred or broken people are connecting with one another. But it's done in such an incredibly distinct and visual way that made it feel like Koganata was somebody that, you know, from my limited knowledge at that time was blending like the styles of, a, of like a, a Linklater or uh, a Malik or some of the more visual filmmakers into something that's completely his own. And then as you work backwards and see the video essays, you see that those like his influences are direct and they are diverse. He's got uh, a lot going on, but much like you, uh, Kogadada is a director and a film watcher who really respects a filmmaker that has a distinct style and puts uh, the visuals first. I just like say, I am not a director just because anyone but well, if, I, if anyone wants to offer me any directing gigs, I'm available. Uh, maybe, but I, maybe that was a Freudian slip. Director at heart, <laughs> director of mind, body, and soul. No, Koganada definitely appreciates the formalism of cinema and understands it as, um, I, I want to say a visual medium, an audiovisual medium. Is, that's certainly tied to how he responds to and interacts with movies. It's just... I. I just feel like it's true of anyone who really loves movies and actually thinks about them on any kind of deep level. I, I don't think it can be detached from what you're watching. I think there's sure there's a level of enjoyment you can get from something where it's just like, Oh, this is a really, I don't know, funny movie with a great script, but there's always a, you know, it's a movie. Why is it a movie? How is it a movie? What, what is happening here to make it a movie and what makes it special? Or is there anything in the decisions the director is making in terms of framing or style or any of the editing decisions that are informing the content that are informing the jokes, the script, the humor, like there are things that really good 
comedy filmmakers albert brooks one of the, the prime examples that comes to mind for me like they, they are very much thinking about that and aware of that and if you want to go back further to kind of more classic style films you go to buster keaton or you go to chaplin the same plies there are very conscious decisions being made there and yet i think koganada is someone that when he thinks of film that's what he thinks about because that is film that is that is entirely the essence of cinema and I think they're like, I'll have conversations with people that don't have weekly conversations with you or, or view Koganada video essays and like seek to have a deeper understanding of what that means. And I think a lot of people would argue that the visuals need to serve the plot and the story and dialogue and all that's more important to making something click. But I have come to understand through this is that the, the plot and the story and the dialogue and the character development all needs to serve what you're being shown because, I, 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 mean, I don't know i don't know i mean what where i'd argue with you on the first part there is i don't know if the average person thinks that the visuals need to serve anything or anything needs to serve the visuals i don't think they think about the visuals unless the visuals are flashy to uh to a point where they can't go unnoticed i i would love to think otherwise i would love to have faith that people are thinking about that i just i don't believe that's the case I mean, I personally don't mind that even in what order a filmmaker or a director, like maybe if they're a writer, they story should probably come first. Like I, I, that's not something that I would ever dispute. But it's you when you once you create your story and you're creating it for screen, you're not writing a novel or you're not writing a stage play. You're writing a screenplay. It's for screen. And that process of writing then makes the visualization of that story essential. Like it, it's literally what defines it as a film. And I mean, I think that's nothing uh, that's never been more evident than in one of Koganata's video essays, which was, I think it was, what is neoliberal or neo class? What, what's the word? I'm neorealism. Neo something. Neorealism. Yeah. Neoliberalism is like Joe Biden. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, is that you can have two films with the it's the same actors the same uh screenplay whatever and two different cuts can make them feel like two entirely different experiences so that's just kind of more along the lines of what uh diving into filmmakers uh like Koganata have, have kind of highlighted for me because uh, you know i'm mostly a babe in the woods when it comes to uh digging into the things that make me kind of deconstruct what i thought i liked about movies and what maybe i'm learning to like about them moving forward yeah i think that's that's fair um and i, I think i'm look i'm i think there's a level of interest and care you have to have for movies to be like i'm gonna watch some Koganata essays but i i do actually think they are they are a really good starting point for someone who wants to expand their knowledge or is just generally interested, but they don't know where to start or they don't know how to advance their thinking about movies. I, I think his, his video essays, like they're not remotely condescending and they're not preachy. They're not overly technical or anything of that nature. They are, like as simple as can be it's funny we, we start talking about the oscars i often have thought that like koganado would be the perfect person to like create 
montages, whether it's for specific categories. Like, for example, if you're going to present best film editing, I know this has been as particularly as certain categories have got cut. It's like, well, yeah, you cut those categories and say people aren't interested because the average person who's tuning in for celebrities, when it comes to best film editing or if it comes to best sound, or they don't really know what they're looking for or what that's about. The solution for that is to not just go and the nominees are and show a clip of a few things. It is to, to show some of the craft in a really concise way. And someone like Koganada could probably do a two-minute video that will do that, will showcase the actual craft there. Now, obviously, he's far beyond that point, but I think it's a, a kind of it's an interesting tool, that kind of criticism for opening up like the greater world of cinema, the greater world of world cinema, the full kind of history, the length and breadth of movies to people who are, they're interested enough to pay attention in the first place. They're interested enough to kind of, to bought a ticket, to be in the room and willing to look. That's like, how do you hook them? How do you get them to start to think about or to appreciate um, the medium on a greater level? I, I think his video essays are an absolutely kind of standout example of how to do that because I, I'm I'm not saying like everyone's gonna be like oh yeah let me watch some some Koganada Ozu video essays, but if you'd never seen an Ozu film and you were like a young movie fan you're like I've heard about Ozu what makes Ozu important where do I start with this like someone like Ozu's filmography is pretty daunting. Koganada manages to kind of distill these directors down to their essence whether it's Godard or Truffaut or Ozu or Tarkovsky or Bergman or Kubrick or Hitchcock or even contemporary filmmakers Wes Anderson, uh, Richard Linklater, uh, Corrida, like you go, you go on and on and on. He manages to just capture the essence of that and what is neorealism is one of my favorites because one it's like genuinely just a pretty genius idea like to actually break that down in that way to be able to deconstruct the genre with such a simple example and capture so clearly uh, what you alluded to earlier which is i can't remember the, the two different film titles of the the versions made from it. but you've got one by vittorio de sica who's iconic Italian neorealist director um, most notably I guess of like Bicycle Thieves and Umberto Day uh, Bicycle Thieves by the way for anyone who hasn't seen Bicycle Thieves like just one of the absolute greatest movies ever and one of the simplest Andrew you need to see Bicycle Thieves because we watched the whole and I think on our previous podcast we watched the season of Mastered None and uh, the opening episode of season two of Mastered None is just a entirely a tribute to bicycle thieves it's just a sheer joy of a film but the Sika, one of like the classic figures a forefather of italian neorealism and then david o selznick this formidable towering figure of classic hollywood and even what hollywood has continued to to represent to this day and their cuts of a film and what is the difference um and in that essay, for example, you don't just get a sense of, okay, well, this is what a Seeker movie looks like, or 
but it's the formal choices. It's they're they're operating with the same footage, so the framing is the, the same to begin with. But even your editing can then inform what you're placing emphasis on. So that's a great like what five minute short, like five minute essay that for somebody who doesn't already know, you get to see and you're like, I'm seeing these two things side by side, and now I understand what editing is, what editing for emotion is, what editing for character or story is, and what it says about a film or a filmmaker, depending on where you place your value on that. And then with that, you decide what's more interesting to you. Like, do you, do you want to see a film that is the second, the main character moves one way in the frame, it's going to cut, it's going to cut back to them. That's not going to waste any time on the space around them, on the environment, on the people, or do you want to feel a real world? Do you want something that is is representing something different like their personal tastes and it's gonna it's gonna be reflected in how you feel but that's just as a standout example one that it's it's really really clear one his ability to hone in on well what makes a Deseka movie and what makes it different to everything else and to kind of i don't know illustrate that for everyone else was there any like i know there's quite a few filmmakers in the mix here that like I'm sure you you've heard of every filmmaker that you watched a Koganata essay on without necessarily having seen their films. Uh, I would say most of them. I don't think I was familiar with Ozu at the time, but but every oh, okay. everyone else. Um, Maybe the most essential for Koganata and for the two films we're going to talk about. Sure. Well, he, here we are. Uh, I mean, a, a filmmaker that that you know I've been circling for a while, Jean Luc Godard. Um, Koganada's essay Godard in, in fragments I think really uh, kind of d- distills a, a few different aspects about the themes that that he's working with and just like how he shoots faces in a really interesting and appealing way in which like you can you become completely immersed by, by the emotion on the character on the screen uh, and like he I've always I've been wanting to dive into Godard for for a while now and it, it made me even more like interested in doing that. And I think that's what, like you said, so interesting about these essays is it's like, it's not like spoiling anything for the viewer. It's just like, here, here's kind of like in a snapshot, like what it feels like to watch this character's films. And here's some things that they do that's interesting and different. And here's, here's why it matters. And just here's it in general. And I think kind of really makes you, want to dive in uh mirrors of bergman was another one uh bergman's another filmmaker that i've circled for a while obviously bergman island made my top 10 movies of uh 2021 so and that that movie uh which i think is uh or that's a different sorry Cry, cries and whispers the uh the, the uh yeah the uh, video essay on cries and whispers was the one that hooked me in on bergman because that movie just seems absolutely <laughs> lit uh as i as i uh, said were, earlier when you mentioned that um, I believe that is currently screening restored at MoMA in New York, and it will have a wider release very soon. And I know in this part of the world, um, it is it is getting re-released next week. So I've never seen Cries and Whispers, and I'm planning on making a trip to see it in the big screen. And then the, the last one I'll touch on uh, is a movie that's been remade by Steven Soderbergh, one that you've tried me to get to watch the original of, and is is something that in working backwards, you can really see the, 
the influence and the mark that it left on Koganata for a film we'll talk about in a bit, but that's Auteur in Space, which touches on uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris. Um, yeah, I mean, I some of these are are will hit you better than others. Some are kind of just you're in and you're out. There's a one minute essence about the sound of Aronofsky. Here's uh, center framing for or yeah. Uh, for Wes Anderson, one point perspective for Kubrick. I mean, there's just a, a lot of ground to cover on a lot of different directors. And uh, I think uh, the more substantive ones like that, the five minutes or longer uh, are definitely the more rewarding ones. And I, I could have done with a few more minutes on Anderson or, um, or Kubrick even. And then I really obviously love the Linklater one because Richard Linklater is one of my favorite filmmakers. And I think uh, he actually got to have a phone conversation with Linklater and that's, that's featured in the essay. And you really kind of get Linklater to tell you in his own words, what he finds so fascinating about the passage of time and how he approaches that in his films. And obviously that's true in the before trilogy as well as boyhood and Merrily we roll along. Yeah. We we roll along soon or no, no, not soon. Sorry. In in many years. Definitely not soon. We gotta, you know, I think everyone, Linklater is very relaxed about that. I, I saw an interview actually maybe in last week where he talked a little bit about how that's going and he's just like nonchalantly, yeah, like we do it every now and then and whatever. It's like, that's a producer's nightmare. You know, a lot could go wrong in the time between, you know, when that movie's got to come out and what you're shooting now. But um, I mean, the, the interesting thing with these is, and you've got you to factor in, like we're part of, for example, you've got... Um, What's the name of it? The Eye and the Beholder, um, which he made for the Criterion release of La Dolce Vida or Nothing at Stake, which um, I believe was the most recent video essay he did, um, which was for the Roma, the Roma Criterion release. I think that's the only one that he's done since Columbus came out, which is understandable. Uh, also kind of sad. <laughs> he's really good at this and I wish there was a lot more of it. It was an ongoing thing that you just be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make another video essay. But I do think that was the, the only one to have come out since um, he actually made his own feature directorial debut, but you've got to consider the audience because where the likes of those were made for criterion as Blu-ray extras and have a little bit more substance and depth to them. A lot of the other stuff is, designed for you know sight and sound being like oh we're would it be cool to have something like showcasing what Wes Anderson's formal decisions look like on our YouTube channel at a time when like serious film media was trying to figure out what things were redefine itself you know pivot to video Andrew I like Koganada is one of the positive I uh, <laughs> I think um, one of the few positives to come from the pivot to video where like that wave of criticism emerges and he's definitely one of the smartest voices around and the outlets he ended up um, working with and contributing to, I think reflect that. But yeah, I, I, when I watch through that stuff, I just, I wish there was more of it. I think he would seem like someone that at some point in his career, like there could be like a five hour Mark Cousins-esque you know, here's the entire history of cinema, like true Koganada's eyes and what he feels is important documentary in him. Like if you were to tell me someone's going to make a 
a big documentary like i don't know if you saw it it's on hbo max now i maybe i'll watch the michael mann one just because it's michael mann and that seems interesting but there's this one perfect shot uh kind of docu-series with just the weirdest collection of movies that they've selected for it i mean the weirdest collection of movies it's like have it just don't do stuff like that and get someone like koganada to be like listen this is what movies is and to just to break it down through the entire history of cinema but if we're not going to get more of that we can at least be very grateful that he's making feature films because the films are really good Let's let's go into Columbus and we'll finish with After Yang. And I want to devote the most time to After Yang. It is the latest release, and I hope that we're going to encourage people who have not heard of Koganada to go and check it out. I mean, that is Koganada's origin story, as far as you could tell. I guess we should touch on that. Usually, we might have some more kind of biography. There's not much more biography to tell you here. Um, he was born in Seoul, South Korea. He was raised in the U.S. Um, his real name, don't know if but his real name is unknown, and it's not something that he's ever been particularly interested in putting forward. So he's not not quite a Banksy figure now, but he he was not like a million miles removed from that when he was just it was just like a name, a word at the end of video essays. Um, it is a tribute to. Ozu's frequent screenwriting partner Kogo Noda um, that's where it came from, he made a singular name and that's who he is he's, he's Koganada um, and that in its own right is interesting and I think in the very little he has discussed about it in I guess a way that most of us who've ever created anything to post online could relate to he's like oh well the reason for doing it was kind of to protect myself because I'd be my own harshest critic. I'd be very tough for myself. And I didn't particularly want to be putting this stuff up with my own name on the end of it. Um, but it that in its own right is interesting because I can't think of too many filmmakers that that applies for. I would do it as a podcaster if I could. It's too late. I don't want anyone Ship to know. Sailed, I, unless yeah, you're going to be it, a new character entirely. Um. No, but uh, listen, if, your, your if voice I, is I, too iconic at this point. That's true. The twang, we can't lose it. But yeah, it is incredibly interesting that uh, in a in a field where I think there's a, a lot of uh, vanity as well, and like you, you want the recognition and who wants the credit, who gets the writing credit here, blah, 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 blah. He's just like, you know what? I'm just going to remain a mystery in, to some degree. Yeah, and that kind of aligns with his movies. Like when you, it's something I really like and admire about him uh, because it's just something that I don't think is generally reflective of people. But anything you know about him when you hear about, okay, he's this video essayist and, you know, whether it's any details out there about his, his identity and his, I guess, his desire to remain relatively anonymous. I mean, he is someone unavoidably when you have a movie starring Colin Farrell um, that's like premiering at big film festivals he's now out in the world and you see him and that can't be avoided but all of that stuff that level of kind of I don't know being humble and thoughtful that's that's all comes true in his movies and his movies are deeply gentle 
in spite of the fact there's a lot of kind of not so gentle stuff at its at its heart he finds a way to kind of i guess channel his own spirit through the films that even when the subject matter is something that could be treated entirely different by another filmmaker he has he has his own way of interpreting it on screen yeah and uh there's an incredible warmth to his films too that that comes through like some of the darkness i mean columbus we get a story about two i I won't say break broken but two kind of beaten down by life people whose lives intersect at a time when they probably need each other most and there's a degree of cynicism about their situations um and kind of their approach to their situations and and that especially in one character's case that you know their life kind of just is what it is and it's never going to change but through that connection there comes that warmth and an opportunity to kind of get to know somebody with your um with your guards pulled down uh and then at, at the end of that there's this underlying warmth and i think that also applies to after yang which we'll talk about later which is also dealing with kind of some heavy subject matter but there's always that um warmth at the center and i I, in columbus i also like kind of the juxtaposition of uh kind of the the buildings that are, are still standing and serving their purpose and how that can apply to people as well um, I mean, it's it's a visual movie about people and structures and how <laughs> they kind of all tie together. Um, but yeah, uh, Columbus, I think, also appealed to me because it directly kind of takes some of that influence from Linklater. And I, I did have a question for you that I never quite asked um, when you rec- recommended this to me. Because you from the get go, you said like you weren't just recommending Columbus because you loved it. You were just like Andrew, this is yeah, a movie it's, it's to your that, taste. That's gonna be to my taste. What about Columbus really made you feel that way about me as a viewer and what I care about? Because this, even even a year ago, some of the like the the details and the depth about what Koganata is as a filmmaker and kind of his influences and his visual style isn't something that necessarily would have jumped out to me. So it didn't really do that until the second watch, but it really landed, still landed on the first watch. Uh, certainly, like Linklater is a driving influence of the film, and Koganada makes no secret of that. Like he, yeah, he made a Linklater video essay where he talked to Linklater, as you touched on. So Link, Linklater is someone that he clearly admires that quality of his work. So. I guess for me, and for me as someone, you're you're getting really good at the whole branching out and watching movies and trying trying new filmmakers. But I would say for me, trying to get you to move out of your comfort zone and look at some different things. I, I think this is a standout example of something where I'm like, oh, that's like it's perfect because it's just it's just close enough to your tastes in a lot of way. Um, but it's always it's also a gateway drug because it doesn't really look like all of those other things. And it's so overloaded with visual references and cues to other great filmmakers. And some of which I, you're probably still not aware of and you would may not be unless it's like, oh, hey, watch this. Like uh, Antonioni is one that I don't know if that's called anything you've read on it. But, and I don't think he has an Antonioni video essay. It's a little surprising definitely a very important filmmaker to his style 
Um, but if you watch like Laventura, you you can feel Columbus and you can feel the vibe of you know people, two people having conversations in a way that I guess Columbus is written that evokes Linklater, but in some of its framing or some of the ways it navigates through its story, it it's very much it's speaking to Antonioni. And then you've the, the way the film uses negative space, which maybe we'll talk some more about because it's really the essence of the film. It's the film which is centering architecture and buildings in a town that are frequently dealing in negative space. And the characters talk about it in the movie and it's there. And I think there's a lot of interesting ideas and metaphors that Coconut is playing with for an audience that is right there and about art and about people's relationship to art. Um, but to me, so all of that is there. And I think, oh, that's something that the way I like to think about movies is that everyone can get into something that's beyond what they're usually watching. They just, if you just say, oh, hey, watch Ozu. Like there's no, there's no you being like, I love Linklater. I mean, like, oh, the, those two filmmakers are not like any of being like, hey, watch Ozu. Where there is always a bridge and it's a great thing you can do with movies like a whatever, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon-esque thing you can do with cinematic style and with filmmakers where it's like, well, if you like this filmmaker, you'll like this. But this filmmaker also likes this other filmmaker. And it's it's kind of how you can branch that together. So for me, Columbus had all of the kind of the vibe that you would like in a movie, the atmosphere you'd like, but it was also branching off of something that was completely formally different. But I knew that kind of the warmth and the humanity that centers it would mean that you wouldn't just be off put by anything that maybe formally different or if we're to be honest probably slower than than some other stuff you might be watching or would have been watching at that time too like i i think the essence of what you like about a movie is in there there's just also a lot of other stuff that it's the kind of thing where maybe it does take someone recommending and being like oh i know what you like and you like this for you to go on that and to trust in it but that's that's where i would have been coming from the slowness is something I want to touch on, but before I do that, I want to set up Columbus without giving. Can away I any can I say one that... thing? Because I don't know yet if you know any of yeah. this. Do you know how Columbus actually got made? Do you know how Coconado became a feature film director? Because obviously, there is a mega mega jump. No matter how good he was and the kind of outlets he was working with, and um, we have we have worked in the online media landscape to go from that to being like, oh, you've got a job in that industry you're covering, which is essentially what, what happened for him is a major leap. So have you seen anything? Do you know the background to this? I have not. Well, it's not going to be what you're expecting because you're probably like, oh, it's like Martin Scorsese saw his stuff and is like, oh, you love cinema as much as me. Let me put you in touch with people. Um, it was in fact... Chris Chris White's do you know Chris White's the director Does the name ring any bells it doesn't uh, he was the director of American Pie oh okay right so Chris White's was writing a screenplay for an English language adaptation of Hirokazu Korodas like father like son a truly brilliant brilliant movie brilliant movie um, and in doing his research, he came across Kogana's Corrida video essay. He was so impressed by it that he reached out to Corrida to speak to him. 
they built up something of a relationship. Um, Koganada shared his script, and Chris White's like, "This is this is great. We need to get this made." So, Chris White's, I think, uh, I can't remember where was it. It might have been an IndieWire interview or a profile on Koganada for the time it came out. There, I read this, but Chris White's, um, for being like the director of American Pie, he is also the grandson of Ingmar Bergman's publicist. Um, so in spite of, I guess, what his filmography would make you think from the outside, according to Koganada, he's actually like a really kind of hardcore cinephile who's, who's got a, a kind of an interest in movies that would go far beyond what you'd expect. So yeah, that's, that's how Columbus got made. It was really because a filmmaker with no track record in any movie like this came on board early as a supporter helped to push it along and was fully supportive of what it was and wasn't looking for it to be any different. And it was able to get backing from there, which one I just think is really cool. And I wish more movies came about that way, um, that people who have commercial pull, they also have things they like that they don't necessarily make and that they may be able to kind of empower some people to make some things that are a little bit closer to that. That sounds really great. Uh, but it's, it's a very, like, if for as obviously kind of skilled and well-versed in the world of cinema as Koganada was, the jump to get to this point is, is a big one. And I think that's a pretty weird but fun story for how Columbus came into being. Yeah, I knew none of that. Uh, Chris White's also directed a Twilight movie. So fun Fact, it is the first uh, one, second one, whatever New Moon is called. I was just I, on his Wikipedia page. I believe that's the second one. So, what I'm saying with like, that, Adam, uh, just Chris, Chris White's his directing career, American Pie, Down to Earth. That's like, don't I don't know that one. Chris Rock wrote it and stars in it, <laughs> so it's topical. About a boy, he directed that. The Golden Compass, Twilight New Moon, um. A Better Life. Don't know if I know that one. Um, and then Operation Finale was the most recent thing he directed. Um, he he did write on the new Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio movie. And he was also one of the original writers who I think then was rewritten on Star Wars Rogue One. So his career is just kind of bonkers generally. Um, but one of the stranger turns I do think still is producing Columbus. Um, he also produced Lulu Wang's The Farewell. So <laughs> it, like there, there are these, certainly these moments of influential independent filmmakers that he's helped to push through and give a bigger voice to. Uh, well, that's interesting. Chris White's has got some good also, taste. Uh, also, Tom Ford's directorial debut, A Single Man. Chris Weiss loves giving people chances, and I and I respect Good producer. that. Producer, I, I like the swings he's taking as a producer. Anyway, sorry, tell people about uh, Columbus. Yeah, so I just want to set up Columbus without spoiling anything because I think it's something that if you're listening, you may not have seen like like me for years, and you should see. So um, it's a story about uh, set in Columbus, in Indiana, about a guy named Jin who comes over from South Korea to 
kind of deal with his estranged father being in the hospital. Uh, his father is an architecture professor, I believe, or he, no, he, a famous architect, whatever he is, famous he's in architect. town to give, yeah, in town to give a lecture about architecture um, at the local school. Um, and then he runs into, and Jen is played by John Cho, who you may remember from such films as Harold and Kumar, um, Go to White Castle. Or the second one or the third one, which I need, I need her two-hour movie. Sure. Yeah, also he also had a support. Trek. He also had a supporting role in How I Met Your Mother for a time, uh, but that's John Cho, and then he runs into a young woman named Casey Cassandra, played by Haley Lou Richardson, and they cut their life just kind of become intertwined based on the time they're there. Casey is. Uh, a recent high school graduate taking kind of a gap year working in a library. Uh, take uh, watching over, we'll call it her, her uh, mother who's a recovering drug addict and is kind of just doesn't know what the future is like for her. And he's, uh, you know, dealing with the, an issue with his father and they kind of bump into one another and they connect on a, a sort of acidic, but also uh compassionate level and talk about her love of architecture and walk around the city and him getting her to explain to him what she likes about these various buildings she's got a ranking and she'll take him down and be like this one's number two this one's number what would this one be this one's in the late she, she is me if i was into architecture and not movies exactly at one point he calls her an architecture nerd and it's an apt comment and it just becomes about them trying to help the other one do like what they should be doing regardless of the situations that are extraneous in their lives and it's a romance without being a romance it's a platonic relationship between the two and it's just important i'm glad you you got to that because i think people have an expectation and that it's it's that the movie is it it doesn't even it's just like it's just not interested in that it's just not what this is about this is like humans who see each other as humans and that's the movie yeah exactly and that's that was what was really appealing to me and uh just the way their interactions together are are shot i mean we'll get a scene of from inside a building as she's describing it and we don't hear what she's describing about it we get this amazing scene that just lingers and lingers and lingers and lingers as they almost have a quasi argument underneath this like uh shaded bridge in a park kind of setting and something in the uh neoclassical what was <laughs> neorealism neorealism Italian, Italian neorealism. neorealism we're gonna have to as penance you're gonna have to watch some Italian neorealism and you'll ever rate this mistake I'll, I'll do it we know oh god my brain is mashed potatoes um <laughs> neorealist uh one of the comments one of those other neo that, takes uh neo words you can throw in the mix here too do you know who the most famous native of Columbus is um, Christopher Columbus. Uh, no. I believe he's Spanish. Portuguese. Portuguese. Uh, the The most famous native of Columbus, Indiana, is former Vice President Mike Pence. Great. This is his Great. hometown. I I do think that's interesting though to have in mind when you see the way it is. Um, like, it makes uh, it makes me think Casey definitely needed to leave that town. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, anyway, I derailed you. 
No, I know where I was going. You know, this is always a process for me. It's like a train with like one wheel missing is my brain. Uh, in the neorealism video essay, he makes a comment about De Circa caring about Zika. the De Zika. De Zika. No or. De Zika. De Zika. Uh, about the moments in between, like mm-hmm. two characters walking. And we don't just get a jump cut to where the end of their destination is. We see the process of them walking and talking. And I feel like in this film, Koganata really cares about the moments in between and that informs well, it's also how... right for you so that that example you give okay so this goes yeah. back to our vittorio de sica and harry selznick comparison from earlier so in a harry selznick cut in the classic hollywood movie you're not going to watch someone walk from place a to place b you're going to get jump cut jump cut jump cut because why does anyone want to see that they want to see action you're purely for action so you're going to you're going to give them the illusion of walking, but that journey is going to be made in a way that completely is uh, out of line with how we experience time. Which This is movies. This is editing. This is what you're playing around with. So when you don't do that, and this is for you now, this is like we're putting you on the spot in class here, Andrew. When you don't do that, when you watch someone walk through the scene, walk from point A to point B, which there's in effect that's in this movie although there's not a whole lot of walking because we're often seeing people when they get to their destination and we will hold there on a still shot of them for quite a long time but i think the, the prince was the same like why why does a filmmaker do that or more specifically why does koganada do that here what what do you feel like it offers so for me is i feel like we so first of all from a just a completely technical standpoint like you you give your actors more of a chance to just be in the scene and really feel the characters. And I think you get little moments within those performances, whether it's a facial expression or the, something with the body language. And I feel like it just gives the scene time to like pull more out of those characters, uh, even without even without the dialogue, because you could have a scene where we almost hear the voiceover of the dialogue as it's transitioning to something else. And you could still get more out of it. If we're seeing these characters um, in this interaction, I think I can think of another scene where Jen is uh, in a hotel room with Parker Posey and we can see them in the reflection of the mirror and their conversation. And you can just like see attention and a longing on his part and a sort of, dismissiveness but also kind of curiousness on her part and i think you wouldn't that's, get that's, that that's if... a perfect example so everything you've said is correct right but I, I don't i don't think any of that is the reason why koganada is using that in this this film particularly like for me this film it's named columbus it's named after a place if you're not jump cutting from someone starts walking to their they're now arriving at their destination if you're just to you we're just we're continuing this uh this particular analogy from what is neorealism and the comparisons made in those two films so we'll use walking but if you're if you're actually deciding no we're going to stay with the characters in that journey you're saying the journey is important so you're saying what's important is the period of time it takes for a character to work through a space like it's it's not that they're going to teleport from point a to point b because sometimes like 
the time put in or the time something takes is is doing something too and it's doing something to whether it's the story or the character psyche or anything else but you're also spending time in the place and you're saying the place is important and th- that for me is the example from that that would apply most to this film which is the place is important and the setting is saying something and in that beautifully composed shot where it's really it's relying on reflections it's still it's like that kind of modernist hotel room that is saying something too and the setting and the kind of slightly cold and clinical setting and the sense of distance and that's telling us something about Jin's state of mind given the situation he's in which is far from home and his father's ill and he's he's dealing with a lot of different emotions and feelings clearly that are maybe on the verge of kind of bubbling over coming to a head in that scene and the space is telling you something and in Columbus for me that's like all of those those scenes are the reason the reason why this film in particular to tell it any other way it's like it just would not work it's because you gotta luxuriate in in the space and in the scenery and in the city and in the architecture to be really specific about it like for me the core team core idea of this movie that comes out to me and it's it's maybe it's the film part of my brain maybe overtaking some of the the emotion in the movie but this is nowhereisville usa no offense to any listeners we may have in columbus indiana right and this is why he, he i believe he like passed through here or he was here on like a vacation or something and he was just like this place is incredible i need to make a movie here because it's just overflowing with like jaw-dropping modernist architecture and it's this midwest town just there in indiana birthplace of mike pence so what is the relationship and this can extend beyond columbus because i think it's true for most people it's like what's the relationship to a beautiful piece of architecture in a place like i think unless you're a tourist who's there specifically to look at the buildings and experience the city people just walk past them so like this is a film about you know great art being right there you know it's right there in front of you and it's not everyone can appreciate and it's about engaging with that too it's it's about appreciating and understanding and taking the time to to let that sit with you and get a greater understanding of it and i mean maybe it's my own biases and also then the knowledge of who koganade is and how he got into all of this that i can't help but see this film particularly in that way and when those two characters are going around and it's like a top five list of architecture that could be his top five favorite directors he could be talked to you know what i mean it's 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 really it's about there's also there's the the scene which i enjoy quite a lot and i think it's well written about the dumb phone and you know smart person and dumb phones and this film is a few years old now so um even that is like i don't know that's aging rapidly and the idea um that casey Hayley Richardson's character, she doesn't carry around a smartphone because she's talking about like wanting to feel kind of connected and it's you know it's good enough to to be able to go search something on a computer when you need to. You don't need to have the internet in your pocket all the time. Like uh, again, I think there's 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 a lot that it's in conversation with about the idea of being present and the idea in 
appreciating the beauty of what's around you and not just kind of overlooking what there is and not just in appreciation, but appreciating with, you know, with other people and with people who share interests, not the similar to yours, no matter whether you're, where you're from, if you're like, there's, there's a lot of that that's there. That's not like the movie. That's not, but it's the, it's the dominant, the predominant read on the movie for me, every time I watch it, it's the thing that just comes to the fore where it's, it's a movie that it's stuffed with metaphors, not in a way that's clunky, not in a way, but it's just, it's a really rich text. Like you can go in a whole bunch of different ways. And as I said, coming into this, you could just put all that stuff aside and the, the movies and the art and the architecture of it and just focus on like the actual emotional elements and the, the deeply kind of personal elements of the characters. But I can't help but notice that. And that to me is the essence of the, what is neorealism? And it's, it's that idea of where, where you're cutting or why you're watching a character walk from point A to point B. Columbus is the movie where you walk from point A to point B because not only does the journey matter, but the place the journey is taking place in matters. Like it, it is going to inform the journey. It's going to inform the people along the way. And with that, I mean, you're making films that are much more grounded in, in a world, in a real world. Like it is the thing with movies a lot of the time because of how filmmaking manipulates time and space that you're just, you're not really anywhere. And it, it could be a, a conversation that actually kind of gets verbalized in a literal sense where you could finish watching a movie and you could be like, where was that set? Or where is that supposed to be? This is obviously a movie where there's no doubt about that, but it's because the world matters, like grounding it in that he's clearly, he's someone who appreciates physical objects. Like it's, no coincidence he's got these kind of Wes Anderson Tarantino video essays either because he responds to some of those filmmakers too but in Columbus I think you get to the core of a lot of that stuff but with a story that is then very much it's like that's coming from his heart and that's where where these ideas or where these influences can come and mesh with something and be made in something that's purely Koganada uh, before we touch on After Gang, um, I'll branch off from that. And I think the the score by Nashville-based am, ambient rock band, like ambient music rock band Hammock is also perfect in like kind of t- adding to that sense of place and spe- specificity. Like this movie wouldn't have worked if we're just getting like random needle drops <laughs> like uh, all across town as they as they uh, stand in place and stare at one another. And then also the performances are really good. I mean, John Cho, this is kind of something that I didn't know he could do. Um, Haley Lou Richardson is amazing in anything she does and elevates anything she does. Um, and we'll talk about her a little bit more later. Parker Posey in a very kind of fleeting uh, supporting or not fleeting, but a supporting role um, is really good. Shout out uh, days of confused. Um, and uh, I, and then the, the actress who played, Casey's mother, uh, Michelle Forbes, and then we get Rory Culkin as, as sort of a, a bookish librarian. Always uh, good to see a Culkin, a, right? It is always good to see a Culkin these days, and he he clearly has an unrequited crush on Haley Lou that he did not express until way too late. But uh, spoiler alert: uh, I mean, he was also turning down opportunities like go and see a movie with her at the start of the film. So if you want to get yourself to blame, 
Also, before we move on from Columbus, I will say I never more thought that a hypothetical character would have been perfect for college age Adam when I heard her in the beginning of the film say, do you want to go see a film? Not do you want to go to the movies? That's actually, I wonder, that's an interesting because I, that is a, that is a geographical thing, I think, too. Movie, so movie is a people deeply, in... deeply American word that has gradually permeated like society over here. No one's going to look at you funny if you're saying movie. But I would say film as my, that would be my go-to more often than not, because that is, I think that would still be the thing. It's like, oh, what film are you going to see? But yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, is that Koganada and some of his other, and the, the man literally worked with the BFI for many years. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I do think on that specific a point, more and on every other than... point, I'm not going to disagree with your, with your overall assertion, Andrew. And, and I think Casey's a little more, you know, intellectual than maybe most of the residents of Columbus, Indiana. So she might, she might say film. She might be, she might consider herself a, a film and architecture buff. We just didn't get into that. I, I will not dispute anything that you've said, both in regard to Casey, both in regard to college age me and hypothetical situations. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Haley Richardson in a minute because she is one of my favorite actresses on the planet. I think she's just a revelation every time I see her. And I think a lot of people I would say that about don't feel like they have potential to be like one of the biggest stars in the world. I think she has the potential to be one of the biggest stars in the world. And I don't know why that hasn't been kind of picked up on. Like Haley Richardson could be like, I don't know if there's any Marvel superheroes left, um, but like she could be perfect for a lot of the stuff they're doing. And I think could carry it with her personality and with her acting chops. And that doesn't seem to be something that's happening. I'm not going to complain if she keeps showing up in Koganada movies or uh, Andrew Bajalski movies or whatever it might be. Like, if that's what her career path's going to look like, I, I think the movies I care about will be all the richer for it. But she is amazing. I mean, she just kind of radiates this energy. Um, Support the Girls is... Have you seen Support the Girls? That's that's have, maybe yep. one of the best examples because she's playing like a character that is so overtly like bubbly and over the top. Manages to do so in a way that remains very charming, though, where I think in a lot of actresses' hands, that character will become very irritating very quickly. But she just when she comes on screen, like she lights up the screen and the camera gravitates towards her. Um she is she is an amazing actress and i think super versatile and as you know i will watch i will watch anything she's in any kind of like teen comedy that i'm not going to be going near otherwise if i hear Haley Richardson's in it i'm, I'm gonna fire it up um and koganada didn't like discover her she would have been in edge of 17 before that which i think is a movie we talked about way back probably on our, our previous podcast actually a really good kind of indie comedy that was Key and Kylie kind of Haley Steinfeld um, breaking out as someone who wasn't just a child in true grit. Um, great movie, and Haley Richardson really good in that. But it just it feels like Haley Richardson is someone who just like should be about to pop off 
into being a megastar at any given moment and it needs to happen i want it to happen but hey if if you could be successful and still work in movies that i like even more that would be better and my one thing i want to do before we before we go on to after yang um i relayed this detail to you just before we started so i was re-watching columbus on my blu-ray i have which is uh, released by Network Releasing, who was the distributor for the UK Blu-ray. And I had an interview booklet in it with Koganada. He's interviewed by Jason Wood. And there's a, there's a, just one very brief interaction here, which I think like it doesn't just sum up Columbus, but it sums up Koganada, and it will fit into then after Yang 2. So uh, Jason Wood says, As Honeyoni has been mentioned when discussing the film, Columbus is much warmer and soulful in tone. Were you keen to explore the possibility of a balance existing between formalism and humanity? To which Koganada replied, yes, the possibility of this balance was and is everything for me. And that, that is Koganada's filmmaking. It is finding a balance between formalism and humanity. And when you see Columbus, it's, I think it's like blatantly obvious that he's achieved that. And as a kind of leveling up and a progression, I think it only goes even further in After Yang, a film that is maybe kind of more overtly emotional and exploring the idea of humanity and what that means in, in a different sense, while also continuing to be even bolder and bolder in terms of its formless decisions. So, Andrew, After Yang, uh, one, of the, one of the few 2022 films you've seen so far. So... How did you respond to After Yang? I really liked After Yang, and I didn't have any of that kind of Solaris comparison that I've formed in my own mind later to go off of. But I thought it was uh, a really interesting kind of modern futuristic sci-fi film along the lines of Kimmy, but in a different way. I think Kimmy did a great job of uh, kind of highlighting the trouble with virtual assistants and things of that nature and the scariness of data privacy and that sort of thing. But I love the way uh, after Yang paints AI and humanity into a world in such a normalized way. And, and the way that he does that is by making it seem like they're trying to get their iPhone like, to work again and that's such a it's such a unique way to do it there's so much like i said the spaces in between there's so much process about this movie and it's just like a mundane trip to the mall or to the mechanic shop but what we're really talking about it, it is, is colin farrell trying to fix his iphone and like it really yeah it's colin farrell trying to fix his iphone but the iPhone because his is... daughter loves watching YouTube videos on the iPhone like if we want to if we want to just make it completely of this world that's essentially yeah and that's just so genius to me because you have the added factor of the emotion that comes with if this iphone was a member of your family and not just an inanimate object that you use to uh watch youtube or scroll candy crush is that still a thing i don't play wordle not wordle um but yeah i mean it's just it's such a the mundanity of the task and then as it kind of involves into kind of like a deeper conversation about what it means to be human it's just so well done i i don't know what i expected i knew literally nothing going into this film and it hit every expectation i would have uh about what is koganata's follow-up and 
as a sci-fi film. Um, and it has the best opening credits in of the decade. I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I haven't compiled a list. I haven't made. You have a, I'm really tall. That's true. But you're prepared to make the bold. I. I they're, am. They are great openings. Like I've that. watched them on YouTube like three times since seeing the movie. But uh, yeah, what stood out to you about After Yang? Because I know you you saw it a little bit before me. Obviously, we had been looking forward to it since I was done being the worst and and saw Columbus. I've been and looking then, forward to this know, movie for like four years, three years yeah. for sure. Um, and COVID, this was one of the movies that COVID kind of, I guess, messed around with a little bit, although not in a nosy, not in a noisy way where it could be pinned on it. But I was just like, I need to see After Yang. Need to see After Yang for quite a long time. Um, which is a lot of expectation to have on. I don't know if it lived up to my expectation in some ways. Um, but that might actually be better because it's Koganada, but it's slightly different than what I was expecting even. Um, I actually think I expected something that was just a little bit more traditional sci-fi. Maybe that was from some of the things I read kind of in terms of story and I was cool and that was not the case and it was seeing him explore um, some sci-fi ideas in a world that really isn't very science fiction I want to start with something that I think is going to sound unusual to anyone who's seen it Um, I think it's really disturbing because I I do think there is a part of this that like reflects what this kind of reality would become, which is the movie is very sweet. And I think the family are very good people, but the story essentially, it's, it's based around Yang. Um, and after, after Yang, as the title suggests, who is like an artificially intelligent kind of robotic being. Um, I'm trying to think, was it specified? So he's Asian. Is it Chinese? Was Yes. But, um, so to, because... to get to the core of it. So um, I guess the, the parents in the family are Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith. So a white man, a black woman. And their daughter is played by Malia Emma Chandrawijaja. I'm glad I tried to pronounce that rather than you, Andrew. But uh, apologies if that is incorrect. But their daughter is Asian. So as we find out as the movie goes on, although I don't think it's even termed quite like this and it is a science fiction movie, so I don't know exactly how it works out. But the premise is essentially that they've adopted this child and they want the child to have a strong understanding of and relationship and bearing to her Chinese heritage. And so as this kind of older brother, Yang comes into the household and Yang is capable of, you know, giving all variety of facts about China and um, answering questions and kind of prompting uh, Mika in all kinds of way to connect to and explore and be aware of her heritage. And that is all really great and really sweet. And I also think it's terrifyingly depressing. I think it's what humans would do, which is pawn off some really important and potentially emotional or even difficult stuff onto 
technology to solve. <laughs> like that's if we get to this point. I, I think there is something that is much more dystopian than like the vibe of the movie. And I'm not suggesting that Koganada isn't thinking in exactly those terms that this is really dystopian, but I, I do think it's an interesting kind of framework that within the movie operates and operates in a very different tone and vibe, which is the uses for technology in this in this film are very dehumanizing. And I don't just mean that for the technology, which is increasingly human in the film, but also for the humans. Uh, I don't think anyone is getting served very well by this. And there's there's certainly plenty of moments and interactions throughout the film that are are really kind of in dialogue with that. But I, I just, to me, that was a really, really interesting choice. That's not what the movie's about. The movie, like, I guess on its surface is about you know, you have grief because all of a sudden, essentially, the fourth family member is gone. Um, memory certainly plays into it, and some of the devices that are used to kind of give us a greater sense of Yang and Yang's place within the family. But that is, it's something that, particularly on the rewatch, I was thinking a lot about, which is this is really fucked up because it's it's so human in just it's depressingly cynical use for a technology like this with good intentions yeah, yeah. you know it's kind of uh, oh. i think a, a lot of the stuff we talk about with like tech and with ai is thinking of like really evil worst case scenarios before anything like that happens though we'll probably you know we'll probably defeat ourselves <laughs> we'll we'll make ourselves less connected with each other with reality um, by just being like, oh, you know, the AI could take care of that instead of me anymore. And it's it will only lead to uh, a regression as a species, Andrew. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because of, of the way the different characters react to uh, the situation. Because it's almost like people in the certain stages of grief or just the way certain people try to handle situations like Colin Farrell's character the father is like you know I'm on a mission I'm not grieving Mm -hmm. because I have this mission I'm focused on and then uh, Mika the child obviously is like I just want Yang back I want my robot brother back and then Kira is probably having the most like emotionally responsible reaction to the situation and is saying like yeah we're gonna miss Yang as part of our family but you know just the way that it happens when a loved one dies or a pet dies or whatever it may be. It's just like, we need to be sad about this and we need to move on. And and so it's interesting how that all ties together. And like you said, every member of the family's intentions are, are good and noble. It's just like the tech, the like embracing the technology, the way this exists, it's just, it, it, it blurs the line between what is human, what it means to be human and, and, the difference between that and an iPhone. Like it's just, it's a whole, it's become a whole different thing. And but it's, it's also, like, it's, it's the, so to be more specific and it can't be overlooked, like there is the idea of race and cultural identity there and yeah, uh, cultural appropriation even too. I mean, you look at a lot of the aesthetic and Colin Farrell as like this kind of tea master, <laughs> which is a really an, an interesting choice for his present for his profession and the setup. Um, but it's one of those things where in a real life sense, I mean, this is, 
the most noble of intentions, like, you know, non-Chinese parents adopting a Chinese child and deciding, you know, we think it's important the child is Chinese. We think it's important that they, they know what that means and they have a connection to that. But just as important would be that the parents have a connection to it, understand what it means. And so much of that is just kind of, it's passed off onto, I was going to say a non-sentient being, although, I don't know, the movie, the movie certainly. Well, and I think it comes down to their oh, it's not a spoiler, by the way, just in case I do think the, I'm trying to spoiler it. I think they fail, feel inadequate in as parents to a degree because of that and then i think as as we see from like flashbacks as yang starts living with them we start um to see a little bit of regret in the role that they thought he was going to play when they brought him into the family rather than the role he actually played when colin farrell's character is like you know i i so, something about like I don't only want you to have fun facts about tea or, or something like that or it's like I you know this but like like it, it kind of feels you, you get the sense that he's feeling a little bit guilty and so there's a lot of conflicting just emotions and just like like you said cult, cultural appropriation aspects of, of that storyline um, but at its heart they are a well-meaning good family they have family dance night and like who wouldn't want to be a part of family dance night and like the spinoff I want to see is like we've seen this family adopt Yang for these for a uh, uh, positive uh, reason, but like who's the person that's like uh, acquiring people to just run call centers and sell software, like and creating entire AI systems that are actually real people and, and putting them to work? There are a lot of like ways that this technology. You want the after expanded universe. I, 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 it's a very intriguing thing, and it's a reality. I hope we don't one day get to, or at least I'll be long dead by the time that happens. I mean, one of the interactions. I think there's there's an interesting element, particularly as the film goes on too, and we get to see Colin Farrell's character, the guilt he's dealing with, or I guess how he viewed Yang, which was as something lesser than a human, and yet the. The contradiction there is he was prepared to trust Yang with a really important role within the family and within his daughter's life. But there's the scene where um, Mika wants to go and get some water, wants to go and get a glass of water in the middle of the night. And like he learns this is something that happens quite regularly. And she tells him that she would always just ask Yang to go with her. And his response to that is, why don't you just ask Yang to get the water for you? Why don't you send Yang to get the water and you stay in bed? Which kind of, you know, it betrays this view he has of like this this servant robot um, as opposed to being an actual member of the family. Um, and I, I do think a lot of what we then see him wrestle with is tied to that. I mean, this film to kind of zoom out from some of the plot stuff, because we're probably getting into a lot of the territory of the plot um, and about as much as we can go without giving specifics to start to spoil it. But there's like, it is a really deeply layered world and a lot of stuff that just kind of gets left there, but is unexplored. Um, for example, the neighbors who Colin Farrell looks down on because their kids are clones. <laughs> like 
that's that's really interesting like there's it's really kind of ripe for analysis on what exactly okay what's the metaphor we're drawing here or what is uh what is the intent behind that and then also just trying to work out the the varying functions that um that are existing for i guess what in colin farrell's eyes are not necessarily all the same humans there's this pecking order in place and it's not the film that's gonna unpack that in a a way that kind of reveals something really dark and sordid about the world but i appreciate that it's layered into the world i think it makes it all the richer for that it makes it all the more real and depressing in those kind of throwaway lines too it's it's representative of what the real world is like and i think it's it's that little details like that are essential in his character development and the journey that he goes on as we see him experience more and more like guilt and understanding about a robot slash person that he thought he knew but he didn't really i mean it's almost like uh some kind of situations where like a family member died and uh, a friend comes up to you at the funeral and tells you stories about them that you didn't know and and that's kind of i i feel like a lot of that um happens for colin farrow's character about yang and then as those details become more clear it starts to kind of change the way he sees the world and but those details are essential and like you it's a joke and it's never going to happen but the expanded after yang universe i mean it's like this he's created a world that what we're seeing is very small but it's it's very clear that it's a large ecosystem with a lot of different like Joanna Hogg made Souvenir 1 and 2 at A24. This is not completely, you know, uncharted water. Don't threaten me with a good time. Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen, but if, if there was ever an interest for it. I mean, I think that speaks to Koganada's direction and just the way that he has created this world that it feels so real and lived in. I was thinking, particularly while re-watching this today for the podcast, uh, obviously having just gone through our Oscars exercises this is the movie that the Academy will certainly have forgotten about but will probably have forgotten about because it's it's like so far away and it really is kind of this got released in what is essentially the tail end of last year's season although it'll be eligible next year the production design in this movie is absolutely unbelievable like uh, I think particularly like the vehicles I don't know if calling them cars would be in any way accurate they look incredible and they look they look like they would fit in a science fiction movie operating at a budget that's probably in the realm of a hundred times what was actually here to work with in this film um the homes that they live in and the creative ways in which Koganada uses the glass fronting of those homes and the doorways within those homes for its framing pure ozu pure pure ozu and certainly some of the asian aesthetic in the house is informed by that too maybe you pick up on that having watched some of his ozu video essays if you haven't certainly watch any ozu movie and you'll be like okay i get that i see that that's maybe at the heart of this one even more than columbus which was a film that got a lot of comparisons to ozu to begin with and certainly i think if you're going to look for like a kind of a North Star filmmaker for Koganada, I would say it's probably Ozu. Um, but 
just an absolutely stunning movie to look at and not just in a like what can often be the flashier ways which is your cinematography or your editing it's like it is of a piece with Columbus there is certainly a very deliberate pacing it ties to one of the words we used earlier which is a gentle nature like for as much as I've talked about my read and some of the subject matter some of the ideas that are at work in this film it's it is gentle it's how he makes his movies it makes them really approachable I think it allows a viewer to just kind of sink in and let the movie take hold of you um but the production design the costume design just this is a really fully formed world and a world that looks really really good <laughs> like really really good um and that is that is no small feat so credit credit to um to Coganada for that I actually I'm trying to look up now I don't know who did the production design Alexandra Schaller did the production design um only got eight credits to her name but some some interesting stuff in there Maggie's plan um little man yeah some good stuff there not necessarily anything though that would have had me kind of foresee this coming so that is that is interesting any other thoughts on Afriang? um so again great and like understated performances from Colin Farrell uh Jody Turner-Smith um Justin H. Men uh Hey, Lily Richardson. Hey, Lily's Sorry. here. Um, but we're, we're not going to talk too much about her, I think, for reasons that are... Yeah, absolutely. But, like, there's almost something interesting about the dialogue in this film and just the way the characters chat. It's almost, like, scaled back a few notches Yorgos Lanthimos uh, English-language films. There's, like, mm-hmm. a dryness to the interactions. And especially with after Yang, I think uh, it, it makes it feel like, I don't know, it's just part of that world and it i don't know the quietness just really works for me um oh, Colin I, Farrell obviously does that and and that really. could just be like brain it's, association it's part for of me. his delivery i think does that but he does that really well and, and if if my ears not mistaken he, they just let him be irish in this right yeah I, I i think uh he generally in his movies does just tend to be irish like he Obviously, sometimes he goes for accents. He swings hard, and he's the penguin. Um, but other times, uh, more often than not, in movies, where you're like, should that character maybe have an accent? Colin Farrell is just being Colin Farrell, and yeah, that's and I, answer. and I, I'm I'm team let people use their their uh, natural accents in movies. Uh, so, but anyway, yeah, just great performances all the way around. Um, Sorry, my dog is back from the vet and he is barking in the background. So apologies. Let's hope that's a good sign. It is. He's just a little irritation due to his tendency to eat plant life in the yard. So nice. guess who's not going in the backyard without a leash for the next few weeks? <laughs> that guy. Um, yeah, no additional thoughts. I mean, I think, uh, like you said, it's it's one of these movies that could just come and go just because of the nature of how things get released these days and when it's it been released. It will because of its timing. And also, um, A24 have multiple partnerships. I don't know why this was one that went into their Showtime stream as opposed to being part of their Apple TV Plus deal. And I think 
this would have fit in much better with Apple TV Plus in every way. Like it also kind of fits the. Well, I don't know. Maybe the technology elements would prevent it from being an Apple thing. Maybe Apple wouldn't like the idea of you're going to call these places because your iPhone isn't working and isn't important. I'm not even joking, like because I know they have very strict um, guidelines on how technology and even more so obviously their own technology can be used in any of their TV shows or movies. So I, I whether that had a part in it, it just in a lot of ways it seems perfect because Apple have this goal to obviously have pretty arty pretty intelligent but also kind of down the middle and fair that's largely family friendly and there is nothing in here that would stop you know someone of any age from being able to watch it although it would certainly be over the head of children it's not designed for children but it it feels very apple tv plus um so interesting that it went to showtime route but i mean ultimately what that meant is it was a day and date on streaming and in theaters and that sucks like this movie did not gross at all um all i'm seeing is a forty-seven thousand dollar box office return which that screams ultra limited release um so i hope the showtime deal is certainly paying enough to make up for that i'd be skeptical um this is yet to get a full theatrical release in this part of the world that is only screened via festivals and um, i think honestly throughout most of europe so i'm looking forward to that i also don't know who is distribution what kind of release it will get it's something that could do pretty well i think marked it the right way and you've got colin farrell like you could get audiences into this so that's why i think it's a little bit of a pity the way that played out with the day and date with showtime and I don't know. I want Koganada to continue to, to make whatever he wants and to make really good stuff. We should mention at this point, because maybe it's a little bit weird, we haven't until now, but we well and truly, as we tell you all the time, we are the movie podcast now. Um, Koganada has another project out at the moment. I believe he directed four episodes of the aforementioned Apple TV Plus's um, new show Pachinko, which from any reviews I've seen so far is by all accounts one of the absolute very best shows of the year. And from what I've read, I'm I think I'm gonna check this out. Um Koganado would be enough to to tempt me in there. Uh Yunyu Jung from Minari, obviously an Academy Award winner last year, her being in the mix too. You, you've got my attention. Great reviews on top of that. I'm like, yeah, okay. Koganada and all of the buzz and everything else around it, you'll, you'll get me to check something out that's only like eight episodes anyway. But so he's busy on that front. Um, just please don't end up in TV. <laughs> I know it might be easier, but there would be something truly like tragic and heartbreaking if like one of the definitive movie i'll use the i'll use the americanized term even if it's not the one that coconut might go for but the movie video essayist was all of a sudden to become a guy who could only find work in tv like tv is the only place someone will fund his kind of ideas i don't believe that to be the case because i i think he is the kind of filmmaker that someone like a24 and neon those kind of distributors will their door will always be open and clearly like he commands a certain level of respect 
with a brand of actors and I don't know, maybe more, um, more discerning or adventurous, like A-list actors. Someone, for example, I could easily see in a Kogan, Brad Pitt. I, I, I could see, like, if Koganada had an idea to have, like, call for a Brad Pitt, I think Brad Pitt would be game. And by the sounds of it, someone like Colin Farrell would work with him again. Uh, he's two for two on working with Haley Lou Richardson, and long may that continue. Uh, I think there's there's certainly a path there, but I just hope we get to see more and more movies from him because he's a really interesting and distinctive voice, but he is also someone who has that and has his own perspective, but he he draws on the best of what cinema is. And I'd like to see him continue doing that. I agree. I mean, he's someone that's able to influence the way I think about film in the same way that, you know, having long discussions with you has. So uh, doing it again, I'm... you can compare me to Koganada. I'll take it. A- Adam, I'm, I'm nothing if not a ride or die, but yeah, I, I'm excited to see what it goes moving forward. I'm terrible with TV shows, like just the absolute worst. Like I can't keep up with anything, but I might, I might watch this. Um, add it to, to my queue with uh, Top Chef. Definitely two things that are very similar. There. You don't even watch Top Chef? No, I do watch Top Chef. Oh, that's, okay. That's, I thought uh, you meant yeah. it was in your queue, but no, it's just when I watch television, it's basically like people eating things. Yeah, yeah. And now Koganata like can work his way into it. It's, you know, people, you know, hitting balls and people eating things. <laughs> that, that uh, uh, but let's, not I'm the way it marinate. necessarily sounds, but yeah, hitting baseballs. Uh, oh. You know, soccer balls. This this is why I was trying to golf balls. I was trying to come up with a, a term that had a broad function, but it may be too broad. Maybe, ladies maybe and gentlemen, the Masters coming to a television near you next weekend. Yes, this is very true. Trust me, I'll be watching TV that week. Um, okay, that does it for us for now. Um, next time, we're going to talk about maybe Andrew's favorite filmmaker. Certainly the director of some of Andrew's absolute favorite films. That is someone whose name has cropped up multiple times in this episode. One Richard Linklater. Um, Linklater has a new film coming out, dropping on Netflix next week. I can't remember exactly which day. This week? Maybe it's it's Friday and I've forgotten, but it it is very close. Um, His new film is Apollo 10 and a Half. It is a coming-of-age film in the rotoscoping animation style that he previously used in uh, Waking Alive and A Scanner Darkly. And, yeah, it drops on Netflix on April Friday, 1st. April 1st. So, yeah, we're just about to have this a new isn't, later This film. isn't a joke. It's not an April Fool's joke. It's dropping. And screening in select theaters from March 24th? That didn't happen here which that usually does. Netflix is usually good at that, so I'm disappointed about that. So I will be watching this on Netflix like most people. We'll do that. We'll talk about... I don't want to just do top fives. Maybe we'll do a collective top ten because if we just if we just do top fives, I feel like one particular series of movies 
um, could take up a lot of spots in both of our lists and maybe even I think some of our other favorites could be similar. So I think broadening it out could create some some more interesting discussion here. Yeah, I think uh, I think it will. I'm always game to talk Link later. He he gets me because he's a big baseball guy. So like uh, loves music, some... too. You, you're kind of kindred spirits. Lit, I think you'd love uh, to live a Link later esque life. I'm going to have the opportunity to talk about something that probably doesn't belong on a top 10 list, but something that I own on Amazon prime, which is uh, Richard Linklater's a portrait of a coach uh, about Augie Garrido, who was his friend, who was a manager at Cal state Fullerton. I think uh, when Costner was there, so they're friends, they were friends as well. And then uh, he was the longtime manager for uh texas and he's a very old school gruff will cuss at you coach but there seems to be a little more beyond there that there's like more so than like the coach k's and the bobby knights where it's like you feel like they're just all cynicism i think there's some some warmth underneath the grit and uh i'll talk about that next week i don't even i don't know if i know about that i'm now looking i'm like is that even a letterbox do i know about that do i it is in terms of like filmmaking and documentary filmmaking it's it's not up to Linklater's standards because I, I think he might have done it for like espn or something it's like a 30 that, for 30 but... inning by inning is what it's called a portrait yes. of the coach yes yeah okay I'll, I'll i think i'll be able to check that out but by the time we we uh it just it seems like incredibly for you so but I, it, it is and there's uh, there's a scene that uh of him dressing down his team in the locker room that is an absolute all-timer. <laughs> okay, it makes you look, hate I, him, but it's fine. I look forward to that. I look forward to talking through a whole lot of link later. Until then, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>